What's up, everyone? Hope you're doing great. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Thibaut Marshall, also known as Tib. And I came across Tib on Twitter, was just really enjoying his output, his commentary, you know, everything he was saying about Bitcoin, of course, and uh, looked into him a little bit, went to his blog, enjoyed his writing, saw that he worked at Knox Custody, uh, a custodial service in Canada, and just thought it would be fun to uh, sit down and have a chat with him. I caught him right as he was returning home from uh, the Lightning Conference somewhere in Europe. I can't remember now exactly where it was. I think it was in Europe. Um, but, you know, he I think he just walked in the door. And then like a half an hour later, we did this conversation. So I have to thank him for uh, keeping uh, keeping the schedule and sticking to uh, our appointed time. I'm, I'm sure he could have easily canceled. Uh, but anyways, this podcast... I'm going to try it a little bit different. So the entire recording is going to be on this episode. So the open conversation and the rapid fire questions. And that's just due to feedback I've gotten from a number of people on Twitter that, you know, kind of want the whole thing to be in one place. But for those who just want the rapid fire questions, uh, I'm going to keep publishing those as a separate entity uh, just for efficiency and convenience and all that. Um, I forgot to press record on this conversation. So uh, the first couple of minutes are gone, and we pick it up somewhere a few minutes in. Anyways, that's it. Hope you enjoy. Let's do it. Same values and the same um, excitement about this space and lightning in general. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we talk. I mean, I talk about it a lot with a lot of the people that come on the podcast, and um, <clears throat> especially in the context of people that have managed to change their careers. So not just, you know, be engaging in this stuff as a hobby, but actually, you know, whether it's in media or working with a company in the space or anything really, and the kind of like energy that becomes available to them when they when they really align with something that they actually give a fuck about and that they are in- interested in. Yeah, it's the, it really is the, the power of economic incentives also like skin in the game. Like for me, it was uh, it was a big move as well. Like personally, I was like, okay, am I am I making am I burning uh, my career, quote unquote? You know, it's like we tend to sort of over overthink these things, and and I was really not sure whether or not I wanted to move full time to. At the time, I am guilty. It was it was crypto, right? <laughs> uh, and you know, yeah, the whole shit cornery thing, and uh, and then you basically you know get educated do your homework and realize that um there's a lot of noise and that actually there's only one one thing that truly matters is just bitcoin and that this technology is anyway going to evolve in layers the way tcp ip and other um public computer network protocols were uh were deployed on the internet um but yeah it, it's uh, it's a big move for for people and my family was like yeah why the fuck are you doing this i mean you have a cool thing with a venture firm and like this is all great like why were you going in this weird crypto uh industry um but best move in my entire life for yeah sure. yeah i mean it's pretty it's pretty unanimous especially when the move is into bitcoin you know a lot of people change their careers during like you know 2017 and those career moves may have not been the wisest you know but people that moved into like actually bitcoin projects i've you know never heard anybody tell me that they regret like doing that just for personal satisfaction for the people that you get to interact with obviously for the meaning of the 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 cause that you're working towards the financial rewards everything yeah no definitely 
though when you enter in 2017, you're entering at the top of the bull market. And so psychologically, it's sort of hard because then you get a, you know, a big sort of withdrawal in terms of, of hype and in terms of, which is really good to build, to be focused and, and to remove like all the, the scammers and the crypto uh, shit cornery. But I, I had a few friends who decided to basically, because I think they didn't have skin in the game and they didn't do enough of their homework in terms of like realizing what, what that thing really was about. And they decided to just leave and go back to, uh, to fiat jobs, right? Uh, first story, by the way, uh, when did you get involved in the, in the space? Um, I was trying to figure, I mean, I've, I've said it before on the podcast, but basically I, I was familiar with Bitcoin when it was under uh, a dollar. I'm not sure if that was due to Silk Road or if it was even before that somehow. But I just remember the hoopla around like it, it reaching parity with the US dollar. And everyone was like super excited, like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's one dollar. And um, and I was I was really interested in it from a like from a political point of view. I didn't like and I, I was a gold bug and silver bug and like had had been very interested in investing for my whole life. Right. Since I was a teenager and I didn't I wasn't I was so enthralled by the political case for it that I wasn't looking at it as an investment. So I would see it go up like 10x and I would just be like, yes, this thing might be real. But the like the, the investment opportunity just wasn't clicking to, you know, to my everlasting regret. But um, uh, and then in 2000, I was trying to figure out I was trying to search. I I changed my Twitter handle like a year ago or something and I was trying to search my earliest tweets and for some reason I don't think I can go back all the way I don't know if that's because I changed the the handle or or, or what but because I was trying to see like when was my first tweet about Bitcoin um, and uh, the only evidence I could find was I back in the day in 2014 uh, Twitter used to send you an email when someone retweeted you <laughs> if you can imagine that and uh, and so I uh, I searched my email and in like in in April 2014 I I tweeted an Andreas Antonopoulos uh video to Joe Rogan and he retweeted it and so that's the first evidence I have of my like bitcoin twitter sort of stuff uh and then you know I I um I started getting more involved in in 2014 picked up my first tiny little bit just to play with uh, and then I started interviewing people really sporadically in 2015. Just like whenever I would meet someone that knew anything about it, I'd be like, sweet, let's, let's do an interview. Just because I was so fascinated by it. And then uh, as, as, as the story goes, somehow this year, I, um, I've never been super active on Twitter. I would just use it as kind of my newspaper. Um, but somehow by just slowly following enough people, this year I entered bitcoin twitter like it, it, i realized it was a thing you know like you know when when you follow enough people that something becomes like an entity so that's that's what happened with me this year with bitcoin twitter it's and a sorry yeah, it's a shelling point yeah everybody converges towards that sort of eco chamber yeah. yeah and when i found it i was like holy shit these are my people this is incredible like i thought i was alone out here in the wild <laughs> so uh <laughs> and then then once i knew there was all these people i was like all right i got to do a more formal podcast because i've just been kind of fucking around with it for a number of years so that's that's my story what about you very cool 
so I this the first time I discovered Bitcoin was in 2012 on Silk Road. I was in a class of uh, of uh, macroeconomics, and we were browsing, we were searching for Adderall for midterms. <laughs> uh, and uh yeah everything was pricing bitcoin but i really didn't care about it uh so i forgot about it completely and i saw it again in 2014 when i was in argentina uh, on exchange and at the time in argentina there was a uh, capital controls so you know all citizens were basically limited to ten thousand uh, dollars worth of exports of, of their currencies and so at my school uh utdt which was the university, a lot of students were actually trading uh, a bunch of things and Bitcoin. And so it sort of came back, but again, like didn't really care about it. And in 2016, uh, I joined a VC firm uh, called Real Ventures. And this firm uh, started building a crypto thesis. So they were like, okay, there's all these like coins happening uh, and all these great projects and we want to be able to invest in this. So we brought in, you know, an investment analyst, quote unquote. He was just a guy who did the pre-sale of, uh, of Ethereum and got, you know, extremely rich out of it. And because he was rich, some reason, like, you know, there was a it was a proxy for expertise, I assume, which is, you know, a fallacy. But anyway, and uh, and so we started building that thesis and realized that there was no way for us to execute it. Uh, because of the custodial challenge, uh, our CFO, it was like, we're looking at a two to $5 million investment thesis. Uh, but the CFO said, look guys, there's no way I'm going to hold, you know, that much worth of, of, of assets on a, on a Harbor wallet. That is a single SIG, like in my, you know, bedroom or whatever, right. <laughs> looking around at, at, at companies who could help solve that. And uh, that's how I met Knox, the company that I work at now. Uh, we tried to invest it from the firm that I was working at, but it didn't work as their round was uh, oversubscribed. But through other channels, I, uh, I, I successfully sort of like joined the team and uh, as their first sort of non-technical employee. So it was a really technical engineer heavy team um, and focused on building a custody product for institutions. Right. Yeah, I had a, I was had a look at the website a little while back because custody is you know <clears throat> one of these challenging areas of uh, of the space and a lot of people have different views on it. Um, but one one of the things that I was because I interviewed the guys at um, Leden uh, last week, and yeah. um, you know on their on their site they they say that their custodian is Bitco, and then you go to Bitco and it's a they, 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 this hundred million dollar insurance is is touted on the site, right? And then I actually had read something on on Knox, maybe it was your blog, um, and it was you know basically saying that sure, you know your level of insurance is one thing, how much do you have in custodial assets? That's another consideration. And what's the disparity between the two? Because you know push comes to shove, you know does it mean you get a hundred percent or ten percent back of of your uh, you know your your assets under custody, and and the big issue yeah, of insurance. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you go, you go. That's the big issue with insurance. It's like it's been used today as a more of a, as a marketing tool rather than a risk transfer instrument. You know, like an insurance policy, if properly designed and adequately sort of allocated in terms of capacity it will transfer the risk off your books as a custodian 
onto insurance markets, right? And insurance markets, they will decide to allocate capital to your boat, to your policy if it is properly designed. And so the issue today is that a lot of custodians, they sort of keep insurance very blurry and don't really explain, like don't educate the marketplace in terms of what the risks that are covered are. And so for instance, the biggest, the most common risk that is insured today is vault risk. And vault risk is literally, you have shards of private keys in a physical vault. Think of it as like, you know, an actual vault that we know in banks. And this, this policy covers a physical intrusion in the vault. And if someone breaks into that vault and grabs the material, the keys or the shards, and they can successfully trigger an on-chain movement, that is covered. But that's it. And so if you really look at the full like private key life cycle, private key management life cycle, from the generation when you start, you know, using physical entropy to generating the seed, to archiving the seed, to constructing a multi-signature scheme, and then to actually processing transaction by using those keys to sign in a sequential order, like all these different steps involve extreme risks at a bunch of different levels, right? Whether it's hardware, operational, whether you're connecting it to the internet at some point or not. And so insurance policies today, they're, they're really not that granular. And it's not to shit talk on anybody, but it's like today it's really, you know, companies get insurance because of their brand equity, their name, or because they have a good balance sheet. So at Knox, we're like, well, we don't have a brand. Nobody knows us and we don't have a balance sheet because, yeah, we raised a little bit of money, but we're not a Fidelity or BNY Mellon or State Street with like trillions of dollars of assets. So how do we do it? We're like, okay, well, let's make sure that we make the design of custody insurable at the molecular level, that everything that we've done is sort of, we measure the risk involved and we basically try to price the likeliness of a risk event of a loss event happening at one point in the private key management life cycle uh, how severe that that loss could be and and then sort of get a sense of like the, the the sort of normalized probabilistic distribution of that risk happening and if you take that you can build a model that is then sort of interesting for for insurance markets to start actually understanding how to properly price this risk uh, and then allocate capital to it and build build insurance towers. Right. It makes me wonder, though, uh, because this has got to be new to a lot of the insurance companies, right? Not not only the asset class, but the, the scheme that you just mentioned and the approach of, of, of not looking at assets or brand name and, and, you know, looking at the kind of structure of, of the scheme. So, like, which insurance companies are, are involved in this space like are is that are you able to disclose that yeah so there are two two main brokers that are active in this space uh aon and marsh uh and so we're working with marsh for for our policy and so those brokers basically so we have a uh a proprietary insurance program that we've designed with them and marsh then goes to market and go and talk to insurance providers. And so then insurance markets, they're split in like different sets of risks. So you're gonna have like the PC market that is more focused on like physical risks, so like the vault risk that we described. Uh, you're gonna have 
more like cybersecurity risk. You're gonna have a you know ENO risk, ENO risk, like a bunch of like different sets of risks. And so for each of these categories of risk, you have different providers, and and then you sort of build. Literally, it's a, a tower where different insurance providers are gonna take different tranches of of risk in terms of the amount that they cover, the amount of loss that they cover. So let's say you want to build a 100 million tower. Well, the first insurance provider A is going to take from zero to $10 million hit, and they're going to price it at a particular premium price, premium target, and that sort of gets built over and over again until you fully maximize the, the capacity of that tower. Right. And the, the most syndicate is Lloyds of London. Uh, that, you know, they sort of like allocate capital to a lot of these, these policies in the market so far, but we're seeing sort of like expansion in, in other markets as well. So on the on the Knox website, it says insured up to one hundred percent. So when I read that, you know, I I'm like, well, what does that tell me? It tells me nothing. It could be zero. It could be a hundred. You know. So what what is the determinant that yeah? What determines the level of insurance that you would receive on your on the assets that you have custodied with Knox or any other given custodial uh, custodian? Yeah. I- the goal, the intent of that is, of course, being compliant with the requirements from insurance markets. Like Again, going back to this notion that insurance so far has been used as a marketing tool, I would say some insurance markets, they've been misled in those policies. And so customers that are you know interacting with those counterparties that claim to have a broad insurance policies uh, are being missed that as well. And so we're trying to make, to change that and sort of have a more of a conservative approach and try to educate the marketplace and explain like what it is that we're looking at, how how Knox is insured, because we are insured. We're not providing insurance to our clients, right? It's like as a counterparty, like we, we do a bunch of different things internally to manage uh, Bitcoins of our clients. And if there's, you know, a loss or, or a theft, then we get we get coverage. Uh, in terms of the up to, uh, it is basically any customer account that gets opened at Knox has the ability to deploy a bespoke insurance capacity for their account. So meaning if you want to get 60% coverage for your Bitcoins and you, you're depositing 10 million Bitcoins, great, you can do that. If you want to get 100%, Great, you can do it as well. And so, based on that, we sort of, you know, the premiums are priced differently, uh, and sort of the, the the cost basis and the model for that will be will be different. Um, so that that is sort of like the first part of the answer for the up to, uh, and then the second is for each and in any insurance policy, there's a list of exclusions, and so exclusions are very specific conditions that if your claim event falls under one of these, you may not be able to get uh, the, the, full, uh, the full claim to be valid. And so, so that is also a reason why insurance markets, um, you know, sort of, you need to include an up to uh, notion when you have insurance, because there's, you're never going to get 100% insurance all the time. Like this is, this is where it becomes marketing and not that honest. Yeah. So what, what would be the example of a case where, you know, a, a, you just mentioned like some uh, events would not be insured, right? 
some would some wouldn't what 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 would be some that like that wouldn't you know let's say somebody has and like i'm not this is purely my own curiosity about how about how custody works you know and how insurance works because i really don't know much about it but um you know what would be like a an event that would occur at where there would be loss of funds but it wouldn't be covered so usually and again like if i take take a step back before answering that question directly it's like the the assumption we're making at Knox is you know, everybody, Bitcoin is a bare asset. Everybody should be holding their own keys and running their own full nodes for verification, right? But fiduciaries, you know, that are managing other people's assets and that are, you know, executing and, and safekeeping on their behalf, they need uh, to deal with independent third parties. And so our assumption here is that if you're doing custody, you need to have the proper set of risk transfer instruments to be, you know, to follow the Bitcoin ethos in a way and be a trust minimized third party. Um, and so in terms of exclusions, usually um, collusion, for instance, is a risk that is not very much covered or if it is covered, it is extremely expensive to cover in terms of premium you're going to pay. Uh, and so this is how, this is a major accomplishment that we've done internally is sort of the way we've architected our systems allows us to be collusion resistant up to a certain number of, of, of internal staff. And so that threshold basically gives you enough assurances to, to get a, a system uh, to be able to ensure against the risk for that system because it's highly unlikely that a collusion event would actually happen. Collusion between customer and someone inside or, or, or employees inside or? Internal employees. So let's right. say, you know, we're holding billions of dollars worth of coins. Uh, and you've seen it in, in, the, in the past, like there, you know, a lot of uh, the most material loss events in the space uh, related to exchanges, for instance, there's, there's always a story around, okay, like, is that collusion? Because you're seeing on-chain movements post-asset, uh, you know, post-asset loss. How is that possible? If you lost the keys, the assets shouldn't be, shouldn't be able to move right. on-chain, right? Uh, and so we've seen, you know, that case for, for you know, a recent example in Canada, uh, there's been, you know, speculative opinions made around uh, Mongox in the past and, and a bunch of other counterparties that just like exit scam on their customers. Yeah, let's let's stop here for a second because you're in Canada. Maybe you have more insight, but like the whole Quadriga thing uh, is sketchy as fuck. What's what's your opinion about it's, that? It's sketchy as fuck, man. Like, again, it's a it's a speculative opinion, but... The guy, you know, supposedly died in India and like they brought his death certificate back to Canada. Um, I mean, currently there's another sort of avenue of, uh, of opinions that's been explored, which is uh, which assumes that this guy is sort of uh, a known. He used a fake identity as, as an administrator of the Quadriga CX uh, corporate entity. And, and basically has used that identity to, def, to, to defraud people of their, of their money and just scam, scam their, their, his customers. Um, 
because you know again uh, from uh, internal governance him being the sole right. <laughs> owner and manage, manager of private keys of a 200 million dollar treasury it, it's it's it doesn't make much sense especially if again these companies because they manage fiat in canada they're regulated and the supervising agencies in those jurisdictions that sort of have oversight on these businesses they do audits and they do you know they have a certain sets of internal controls they have to respect and so on and so forth like we do have to respect that and we don't even touch fiat we're just bitcoin right, right. So, so are people aware of which coins are like the quadriga coins and if and when they move will we be able to tell or is it obfuscated somehow uh, I haven't I haven't looked into this recently, right. but now with the emergence of coin joins uh, and you know large scale mixing services, it's becoming more and more uh, you know tough like for forensic companies to just like follow uh, like traceability is just eroding, which is good in a way. It's yeah. uh, it's desirable. You want you want fungibility for Bitcoin, not necessarily on the on the on the base layer like built in, yeah. but those sort of like layers of coin joins are extremely interesting. Yeah. So then, yeah, you get privacy while you lose on traceability. Um, and he went to an area of India where it's like known for faking death certificates and stuff like that, right? I mean, I when I looked into the story, and then I then I I googled the dude, and I know this sounds horrible, but I saw his picture and I was like, that fucking dude definitely faked his death. Look at his <laughs> smug ass face. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, but no, there, I mean, there's still a lot, uh, a lot of scammers in this space. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of what I was gonna get at. Like, this is the the philosophical divide, right? That not your keys, not your coins, and like I get it that if this is gonna, like, my, in my idealist, the idealist side of myself is like this represents an opportunity to be fully financially sovereign and it comes with responsibility to learn how to take that sovereignty right i.e how to manage uh, generate keys manage keys be your own bank all that kind of stuff on the yeah. flip side it's like that's that's more than just a, a like a technical hurdle that's a worldview hurdle and so a lot of people are going to want to not not uh, adopt that worldview, but they're still going to want to benefit from it being able to invest in the asset or or, or whatever. There's going to be cases where like custodians are in demand, and so like I don't know if it's a transitionary phase where that's in demand until sometime in the future when people become more comfortable with like being their own custodians, or from an institutional perspective, is if it's just always going to be the case. But like you know these. Um, particularly exchange hacks is 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 the major one but you know it, it's just it they they continue to happen and they're always just an example of you know the the terrifying realization that you have no recourse right like if if someone if someone has your There's keys no they own yeah. those coins <clears throat> exactly it's like exchanges are similar to banks that we know today but without the fdic insurance without sometimes adequate customer support and so yeah it's a lot of uh, it's a huge counterparty risk for people that are trading on those venues and if you look at an exchange like an exchange is is just supposed to match orders in a book right and and keep a flow that provides sufficient liquidity for good trade execution 
they should not have to manage bare assets and build an internal infrastructure for cold storage and have people internally manage that and face the risk of colluding again because they're holding a lot of liquidity. Um, I think, you know, if it's a centrally controlled like exchange as opposed to a you know, sort of like these decentralized exchanges that you keep on, on hearing about that are still, I think, you know, very far away, um, then definitely it makes sense to segregate duties between the, the trade and, and the order matching and the custody. So that's where I, I truly believe there's going to be in the future, uh, even perhaps regulators sort of regulating out companies that do not comply to, to the, this need of segregation. Uh, unless you have proper risk transfer instruments and you really get good coverage for your customers, uh, regulators are going to want to, you know, enforce consumer protection and all that. And I know, again, it's out of the Bitcoin uh, ethos to have regulation. Uh, and I think Bitcoin doesn't need regulation anyway. Uh, but if you don't want to have regulation, then you have to be in control of your keys. Like yeah. When there's an introduction of a counterparty risk, I think this is where regulation is going to be uh, is going to be drastic in the future. Sure. Well, if if you introduce counterparty risk, I mean anything that that reduces that risk is your friend, right? So ideal scenario is you 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 know you manage it yourself and you're the only one responsible. But the second that you introduce a third party, then you probably want regulation because it's the only thing that has any chance of saving your ass or or allowing you to protect yourself in any way. Yeah, though I should I should add this uh, little nuance. Um, government issued regulatory frameworks are, for the moment, good enough proxies for security, but they don't necessarily encapsulate all the concerns and all the, the sort of uh, risk vectors that matter for custodians or any other custodial services uh, to, to sort of mitigate their risk. Like, you know, for instance, a very concrete example, uh, there's more and more demand of uh, SOC 2 type 2 reporting for custodians, which is essentially, it's, a, it's an audit and as a counterparty that has that ability to issue SOC 2 type 2 reports, basically you've got to prove that you have a certain sets of internal controls and that you're sort of operating against those controls over an, ex uh, over an extensive period of time. And that is a, it's a good proxy for security, but it is far from encapsulating like all the risk concerns that there are related to the custody of a private keys, right? right? And so this is where security audits are more relevant or open sourcing your, your software stack or particular component of it so that you can get the community to to provide feedback, I think that's a much more sound approach than than just using you know sort of like proxies that are already baked from previous legacy frameworks yeah. that don't necessarily understand the nuances of the risk today. Yeah, and kind of related to this, um, and just like I'm, I'm Canadian as well, so I'm always curious when I speak with Canadian Bitcoiners, like what what the scene is like in Canada, right? So obviously it's it's. I get the sense it's not as robust as in other places, but what is the, the Bitcoin scene like in, in Canada these days, or at least in, you're in Montreal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Montreal. I would say it's divided. Uh, Montreal is the toxic Bitcoiner community, and Montreal has uh, that 
and I'm saying toxic, like I'm, I, you know, I'm a hundred percent, a you know, maximalist or whatever label you wanna, you wanna put there. Uh, but Montreal, interestingly, has a, has a really deep cypherpunk uh, history. Because uh, Blockstream was started in Montreal, right, in 20, 2014 by Adam Back and, and Austin Hill and, uh, and a bunch of other, uh, you know, very smart people. I didn't know it was started but before in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, it was started in Montreal and then it moved to uh, SF and now I think it's sort of uh, all over. Um, but before that, a company, I think it was in the 90s, called Zero Knowledge, uh, was a company building encryption and cryptography tools for the Internet. Uh, that was also launched by Adam Back and Austin Hill, uh, and it was sort of a, an interesting jurisdictional arbitrage for that company because at the time the U.S. had banned the exportation of encryption, so it was extremely hard to sort of build a company in the U.S. and sell that the products we're building to the world because you could not export encryption, right? It was treated as a weapon, and and basically you know that. The rules at the time prevented that that uh, the the, uh, the exports of that. And there's a cool story also in terms of like how they actually broke broke that rule. Uh, they basically printed a bunch of uh, public keys on a T-shirt, and the dude put the T-shirt on and just like went across the border and, and traveled. And they made the case in court uh, as you know this is encryption that was code that was printed on a T-shirt, uh, and code being speech. Encryption being code, therefore encryption is protected by uh, by the freedom of speech, uh, yeah. and therefore they, they got they got that uh, restriction of uh, of encryption export ban um, or seize, I would say. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so Montreal is a good history for that. Toronto uh, is is Ethereum with uh, Waterloo. You know, Vitalik Buterin and the whole uh, Ethereum gang is uh, is out of uh, it was started in Waterloo, so. Toronto, and we joke about this, you know, Montreal Bitcoiners, but Toronto is uh, the capital of shitcoins. Uh, <laughs> so last week, uh, Rodolfo from uh, CoinKite uh, made a sort of a, organized the, 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 I think one of the first like toxic, again, maximalist uh, meetup for Bitcoiners in, in Toronto. So uh, it's great to see the, the antidote spreading. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that that because I, I saw that too and I was like really that's the first in a city like Toronto like a big international uh, city that's the first meetup for something like that you know like it's the first hardcore Bitcoiner meetup yeah yeah it's uh, yeah it's it, it makes you makes you realize how early everything is right like because I w w when you're deep into Bitcoin Twitter you just assume that everybody in the world is basically a, a Bitcoin maximalist right but then you come out into the real world and you're like oh no no this is mostly mostly just on Twitter at the moment it, Twitter man is such a small eco chamber when you think about it I know I know but uh, it seems uh, but it it seems so. I mean, it's great. I've, I'm sure we, we both love it, but... Bitcoin experience would be... Well, our Bitcoin experiences would be so different without Twitter. I would feel so lonely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, tell me a bit about uh, how the Lightning Conference was. I'm curious to know, like... Uh, this was the first one, right? It was the first one, yeah. yeah. Um, and personally, it was my first Bitcoin conference. Um it was great, man. Uh, the 
What I really enjoyed was because I've done a bunch of uh, other crypto conferences and often it's pretty focused on hyping the stuff and marketing and, and thinking like really big, big visions that are a bit blurry and all that. And and this time around at the Lightning Network Conference, it was really about education and about uh, really intellectual, honest discourse around Lightning being a very alpha software uh, that has a lot of potential if executed well, but still has a lot of uncertainty and unknown unknowns. Uh, and so, yeah, I, for, from that angle, I really I thought it was extremely exciting, uh, but also refreshing in terms of like it's still conservative, like people are not overhyping the stuff. Uh, and then it's just the energy of, of meeting all these Bitcoiners that you know you talk with on a on a daily basis on Twitter yeah. uh, and putting them in meet space uh, you know away from the keyboard is pretty uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I look forward to my first conference someday. But I you know I imagine it's going to be one of those scenarios where you see someone and you you recognize who it is. You've talked on Twitter or maybe on a podcast. You're just like, dude, come here, give me a hug, man. Or like you know like because you're just. It's your people, right? And it's great to see see your people in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that's funny about, you said, like, it's conservative. And that's one of the things I love about Bitcoin conferences. You know, like, it's, people are grounded and it's conservative and it's talking about the, you know, the real issues. And then you, I think someone the other day or yesterday, like, showed two videos uh or two pictures one was devcon one was i think the lightning conference or something and the lightning conference was like you know a bunch of people a speaker some cool like i think the drink machine or something like that and then uh you know devcon with all the lights and the drumming and the colors <laughs> and everything yeah. two two different worlds so what i love about lightning if i i would add something is that it is attracting a different community i find that bitcoiners because like you know pushing code to the bitcoin core implementation is extremely rough it's too, i'm not a developer right but sort of like i've read a bunch of that and i've you know heard other people talking about it and it it the the nature of 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 the software project a it's extremely complex but b because it's a base layer that has incredible assurances that you absolutely cannot make trade-offs on uh it makes the sort of deployment of, of new features like again much extremely conservative uh by, by nature and so lightning it looks like it it is because it's a bit more malleable it's a bit more flexible uh and there are more implementations uh already you're seeing a, a much more I like a much more iterative, much more open uh, community in terms of like all the stuff that is being built. Like for instance, you're looking at there's a lot of hardware projects, right, DIY stuff that is around Lightning with uh, little games and and arcade games like the beer machine, the the cocktail machine. Uh, all of that stuff is is awesome, but I I don't feel it was there before with Bitcoin. Maybe it was, but I just wasn't at those conferences. Uh, but I think that that is also a really cool, uh, a really cool element. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Um, I I went to your blog uh, a couple of days ago and read some of your writing, and one of the ones that I I really enjoy the analogy or the comparison, um, and not even comparison. I mean, it's 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 part of it. But when it's you know compared to internet 
uh, protocols, you know, and so the Bitcoin protocol is kind of, you know, uh, positioned as the next layer on top uh, of all the existing protocols. I think that one, you know, when we talk about how to position Bitcoin when you're speaking to people that don't know much about it or that are curious or that are skeptical or whatever, I think that's one of the ones that's actually that that tends to make sense if people can just get a kind of a, a base understanding of of the, how those things work. So could could you kind of summarize like that case for me you cuz you wrote a, bi- a big blog post about it, but if you could summarize it I'd be interested to hear it. Definitely it's it's funny you're mentioning this cuz the reason why I decided to write this one was to have a, a narrative that was focused a bit more on technology cuz I realized that my friends were not into Bitcoin. When I was talking about Bitcoin and making the case for Bitcoin, I was always using the monetary angle. And the monetary angle is a deep rabbit hole. Yeah. And and if you don't have the proper understanding or sufficient time to sort of expose you know, the context to make the case for the monetary phenomenon that Bitcoin is, then it's hard to move to jump from that to actually like the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, but everybody uses the internet. Everybody understands, you know, what HTTP is, because you know, anytime you type in a URL, you're using, you're seeing it, right? And so, so yeah, this is where I start. I got started pretty much. And so this, this article sort of makes a reference to the layered approach of Bitcoin development as a protocol, and that you know comes from Giacomo, uh, who's been you know pushing this this sort of New narrative and so it was like, well, there's the Bitcoin protocol BP and there's the Lightning Network protocol LNP, and those two protocols are layered, and you're gonna see other layers being built on top of it. Uh, the same way we have, uh, you know, TCP that sits on top IP and that essentially manages how data packets flow on the internet, and then you have HTTP that's built on top of this, and I'm you know abstracting away a whole bunch of other public protocols. Uh, that allows for uh, accessing uh, IP addresses for for users uh, in a you know the, the client server uh, model of the internet, and so Bitcoin does the exact same layered approach, but instead of using a client server op- model, it uses a peer to peer model, uh, and instead of being information, it is it is value with intrinsic. Um, financial value in that code uh which uh, we give it the, the name of bear asset that's the tricky part right so i feel like when 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 talking to people if you use that particular angle they're like okay i'm with you okay i'm with you like a new protocol on top of existing protocols and it's like wait 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 when you say it's instead of transferring information it's transferring value how Where's the value coming from? And that's where you kind of got to get into the, the the rabbit hole of money part, right? You got to get, yeah, you got to get in the rabbit hole of scarcity. Right. It's like, well, that thing is Bitcoin has a hard cap and that hard cap is enforced by a software program that is voluntarily run by a bunch <laughs> of computers as part of that network. And you can't change the rules. The rules are if you want to join the network, you got to accept the terms and conditions of Bitcoin, which are there's a hard cap. There's a very predictable schedule of emission of the new units of Bitcoins. Uh, and, and so basically, 
that very simple set of rules give you the assurances around the scarcity of the asset. And again, if you if you go back to sort of like things that are much more relatable to people, because again, if you start talking about gold and money, like for sure, a lot of folks don't understand that because they, and I, I, I don't blame people who don't understand it because the reality, like it takes a lot of time to learn about this and people are busy, they have jobs, they have families, they have friends and other occupations and like, you know, reading about Austrian economics and money on your Sundays. Like it's not the thing that everybody, you know, likes to do, let's be honest. Um, but for instance, like when I was a kid, I was exchanging like Pokemons with friends and the scarcest cards that were the toughest to get, well, they were the most valuable. So like scarcity has always had this concept of value. The scarcer it is, the harder it is to get something the more you're going to, when you acquire it, the more valuable it'll be for you. And again, we all know that value is a subjective uh, perception. Um, but if that scarcity is perceived by a market, uh, and the market being the world, the internet today, uh, well, all of a sudden you have a value that is extremely correlated to that scarcity and this perception of value is just the spot price of Bitcoin, right? Uh, and so I think that is sort of a, a way to sort of make sense of, of why the scarcity of Bitcoin creates value. Uh, and, uh, and then, yeah, you can go down the rabbit hole in terms of like why or how can a, you know, a, a hard cap money work? Uh, because again, we've, uh, you know, Keynesian economics and just traditional fractional reserve banking introduce the notion that actually for an economy to properly function, you have to have that, that sort of inflation target to force people to spend and to stimulate the economy, which is nonsensical when you really you know, think about it. Uh, but these are, these are notions of economics that need to be right? On that exact topic, I got into a long Twitter thread with... Uh... Some you know some nice dude in uh, I think he's in South Africa yesterday. Um, yeah. But we yeah we just went back and forth like twenty times about you know Bitcoin as money is it possible and he was making the case for some not currently non-existent but uh, made possible by a protocol whereby the amount of money issued would be directly correlated by the amount of demand for money in the economy and it would not be inflationary nor deflationary and the issuance would not and there would be no incentive structure in the protocol and i was just you know so obviously based on that i was like how does this how would that even function you know and that that was kind of the nature of our back and forth but um but yeah, I sometimes forget, you know, I'm sure we all do when we're hardcore Bitcoiners, like it just, it makes so much sense. And that's what like we're, we get so excited about. But then when we try to explain it, we realize how many different like points we need to touch and cover for it to make sense to somebody who hasn't been like deeply into it. It's like you think like hey, you could explain it in two seconds, but that's probably because one, you're always talking to Bitcoiners and two, you're like, Oh no, but if you don't get this point, then you're not going to get the point I'm making. So I got to make that point first. And then you're like, oh, but shit, I got to make this point first. And then I got to make this point first. So that's why I really appreciate um, and talk about a lot here the willingness and the importance of like all different types of people uh, coming from different perspectives trying to articulate 
what this thing is and tr- and and try to explain it in different ways because everyone responds differently to different forms of communication and different explanations and i think like everyone should try to articulate this and we just kind of see which articulation makes sense and that's a really awesome thing that's happening now whereas like just a couple of years ago you know people would try to explain bitcoin broadly and now we're seeing like people are trying to explain bitcoin to children you know that children's book that came out recently and then people are trying to explain bitcoin to you know jewish people or people are trying to explain bitcoin to moms and stuff but yeah there there it is there it is so i think uh, i think that's the way forward really trying to meet people on on their respective uh levels absolutely yeah uh as bitcoiners you want to if you want to sort of educate or have conversation with no coiners or pre coiners, uh, it requires a lot of empathy and being aware of the background that the person has. Because Bitcoin is, for different people, is going to be different things. You know, uh, if you look, uh, you know, in in China, for instance, Bitcoin is going to be a great hedge against capital controls because it's unseizable. Great. In Venezuela, Bitcoin is not necessarily unseizable, even though it is technically, but it's uninflatable, unprintable. It has less volatility than their national currency, right? In Hong Kong, well, it is, uh, if you use it properly, it can be less traceable, um, uncensorable in terms of, again, if you've been, if you've been flashed by those uh, you know those lasers uh, in a pro in a in a demonstration. You can get your bank account frozen in Hong Kong today. Yeah. Well, with Bitcoin, like nobody can freeze your account. So again, these and I think these are extremely ext- they're extreme, um, like painful setups that these people are facing. But these are they basically translate into Bitcoin value propositions. Um, and so for for millennials that can't afford real estate, that don't understand stock markets or bonds, and that are struggling with cash flow management, but are still like looking to save a little bit of money because they know that the pension system is not going to be the most reliable in the next 30, 40 years. And I, I consider myself like as part of that that box. Well, Bitcoin is a great savings technology, right? Because it's not debasable. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. know, and I know what I'm investing in because I can literally Google it, go and inspect the code. Or if I don't have the skill set to inspect the code, I have a web of trust of people that I know are extremely smart, and they've actually done and like you know uh, basically uh, did their the due diligence in the in the code base. Yeah. Uh, and so we can understand much more uh, with much more adequacy the sort of all the properties of Bitcoin as opposed to Stock markets, because again, like I used to be a, a customer of a, of a robo advisor, Wealth Simple in Canada. It's pretty big. It's a great fintech, and like you basically, you know, give them whatever every month or or a big lump sum of money, and and they invest for you. But you have no idea in what they invest. You don't understand uh, the strategy. You don't understand if the companies are are doing interesting things or if they're going to be you know providing a return that is consistent instead of being extremely volatile. And so, again, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting how different narratives propagate to uh, different uh, segments of people for Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I love that point and I think it's so important uh, because it, it really is different things to different people. It's so versatile. 
that it that it, it it its value prop or the service it provides is so different across uh, different people. For example, like wouldn't you like to hear the blog post of the Kenyan farmer who who values? Wouldn't you like to hear how they value Bitcoin? Or wouldn't you like Absolutely. to wouldn't you like to hear no. you know the uh, you know the Vietnamese entrepreneur digital entrepreneur who what their value case is for Bitcoin and have them explain that in a blog post or a book or something like I I would love to see you know more and more of that where where people just uh, define it based on what it means to them versus what it might be more broadly on a macro level. Yeah, and if uh, I love that, if I can build on top of it, if you look at all the, the properties that Bitcoin have, so like the unconfiscability, unseizability, and you know, unprintability, and all these things that we you know often talk about, I think overall, agnostic of anyone's background, Bitcoin is is uh, is an economic force that celebrates individual sovereignty. It allows for entrepreneurs, it allows for people to just go out there, be sovereign, like monetarily sovereign, and and take back control of their finance, which is everything. Like we've talked a lot about money being time, right? So if you have control over how you allocate that frozen time uh, for productive investments in the future, whether you want to start a business buy a house or, or educate your children or whatever. Um, that I believe will bring a completely new level of prosperity in the world because people gain back control and because people are much more aware of how to, to manage money and what money is. Cause it requires, if you want to be sovereign, sovereignty means it means freedom. Sure. But it also means responsibility. And and if you're truly responsible for your for your money, for your savings, um, well, you better educate yourself. You better invest uh, in that. I think it's Trace Mirror that says that in that sort of a human capital. If you don't have human capital that you've invested in, then you, you're kidding. You're, you, you can't be sovereign. Right. And so I think we're going to see much more individuals like personally have experienced it and i'm seeing a lot of different friends as well like changed with bitcoin because it's like if you if you don't learn and step up your game in terms of learning how, how money works how private key management is properly done how encryption encrypted messages work on the internet to not leak privacy um stuff related to your transactions and so on and so forth uh you're gonna get wrecked right yeah. And there's no yeah. there's no bailouts in Bitcoin. There's nobody you can go and knock on the door and say, "Hey, I fucked up. Can I get a you know a second chance?" Well, no. It's like you you know you burnt uh, if you burned those those uh, UTXOs, for instance, because you you got hacked or you sent them to the wrong address or whatnot, then it's gone. Um, and so that I think uh, is uh, yeah, it's just changing individuals. I I agree, and I think that's such a great thing you know that we're moving towards this thing that's inspiring people to take more personal responsibility because i think people generally especially in today's society kind of 
abhor a personal responsibility because of what it implies. Because it implies that whatever happens, it's your fault. And the reason why people don't like that is because then they're going to have to judge themselves. If your bank loses your money, you get to judge your bank. You get to complain about your bank. You say they're a bunch of fucking idiots or they're a bunch of crooks or something. If you fuck up and you know it was all your fault, then you got to look at yourself and judge yourself. And I think, you know, in society broadly today, we could generalize and say that people really uh, try to avoid that as much as possible. And, I, and this movement towards taking more responsibility and all the accompanying things that that implies, I think is a really, really healthy thing. And I think it will manifest in a lot of positive changes in people's lives and, and society more broadly, but it'll take time. It'll take time because it, it is, it's uncomfortable. You're stepping outside of your, of your zone of comfort. And so it requires uh, a, an explicit intent to get there right uh and for sure yeah it's easier to delegate the responsibility to other trusted third parties whether it's you know food companies advertising you crap uh or or banks holding your money and investing for you um or you know netflix giving a sense to your life on saturday nights i think if you take back control well okay you know, you actually, you get more educated. It, it comes back to education. Um, I've personally learned so much in so many different topics and fields uh, related to, you know, nutrition. Like, it, it's basically, you you realize that, that you can't trust much around you. That uh, it's sort of, uh, Bitcoin is that orange pill that really open your your eyes around around you and make you realize that actually yeah you have to uh to do your own research uh and and validate for yourself uh, that concept of a full, running your own full node to verify the integrity of you know the bitcoin ledger to make sure that you have actually received payments i think it's a truly exportable concept outside of bitcoin verify everything right uh verify the marketing you're getting around around like do you actually need to eat cereals in the morning you know uh, that type of uh that type of verification and the list goes on and on and on um, yeah i i think it ultimately comes to a fundamental uh question which has persisted throughout probably all of recorded history and that is do people really want freedom when they know what's required to take it and I think like everyone on the surface level would say, yeah, of course, I want freedom. I want to be free. But what do the actions that people take reveal about how much freedom they actually want? And I think you could make a strong case that in, in today's world, when people are given the opportunity to, to take freedom in various capacities, they actually relinquish it. They actually don't take it. And there's a man, many reasons and we'd have to talk for hours to really delve into that. But I think at least Bitcoin is one of these things that's coming along and is not only providing an avenue for, for freedom and sovereignty, but it's also showing people, um, you know, the, the potential downfalls of not taking it, but also the, the responsibility required to take it. And once you understand that, from, like you were just saying, from the perspective of Bitcoin, you'll start looking at other things in your life through a similar lens, whether it's diet or whether it's medicine or whether it's governance or whether it's anything. And you'll, you'll it, it kind of... Yeah, it puts the Bitcoin lens over so many other things in your life of that context of freedom, responsibility, sovereignty, and the work um, 
required to take it. Yeah, and it's exactly it. It it requires work, and sovereignty, if done well, is is the ultimate proof of work, right? In a way, it's uh, you know, again, a healthy body. Well, if you want to be healthy, you gotta eat well and you gotta exercise. That again is another form of proof of work. So I think any and 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 comfort, for instance, is the opposite. Like you know, watching. You know, Netflix, and I, I don't have anything against Netflix. I think Netflix is great, but uh, if you abuse it and you do that all, you know, every day, uh, then it, it just like, sure, it's comfortable, it's easy, and it's sort of, uh, but it's very passive. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna gain much out of it uh, over an, ex, you know, extended period of time. Uh, so I like the sort of the stoic movement that is shaping around Bitcoin as well. Uh, I think it's pretty healthy in a way as you know, you're getting today, we're getting an abundance of stuff, abundance of information, abundance of simulation, abundance of, of people you can date with abundance of food, abundance of shows, everything. And, and Bitcoin is actually sort of breaking that, that pattern and tells you that, or shows you that, no, you should, you know, basically lower your time preference, save, uh, and think twice before spending, and uh, and be you know look in the long term, invest in your future self instead of like consuming your your present self, uh, and that is uh, that is extremely um, it is an extremely interesting proposition in today's age because uh, you're now all of a sudden dealing with trying to artificially create scarcity in a world of abundance um and uh and again we've we've uh acknowledged that scarcity is valuable so i think it's uh we're yeah we're going in a in, a, in an interesting direction i think I, I hope that bitcoin is a movement that will expand beyond the sort of uh bitcoiner libertarian uh circles uh, and really trigger a movement of uh, of individual sovereignty. Um, it's uh, it's going to be really interesting what it does to social constructs in the next you know twenty years, thirty years. Uh, um, yeah, I think it's going to do a lot of good stuff for that. Yeah, I agree. And there's so many interesting philosophical uh, discussions that could be had around Bitcoin. But I know it's super late over there, and uh, I want to. I, I know you want to get to bed. So, do you have time to do some of the rapid fire questions? Yeah, for sure. So, what, what is that? So, basically, I'll just ask you one question after the other. You can answer yeah. however long or short as you like. There's about twenty of them. So, if you want to get to bed soon, then keep it short. And uh, if you want to pass, you can say pass, and then we'll just finish off with some word associations at the end. Okay, sure. Let's try it. All right. So, the first one is, what is money? Money is time we store for the future uh, and a technology, an instrument that allows us to exchange it to other people. If you had to explain Bitcoin to your grandmother or somebody over 80, what would you say? Bitcoin is the native money of the internet. What is the primary reason why Bitcoin is important or interesting to you? Bitcoin unlocks individual sovereignty 
in a way that we've never experienced before and allows individuals to take back control of, of their of their destiny in their lives and that empowerment is i believe the next wave of of societal shift uh for for mankind related to that what does the quote-unquote sovereign individual mean to you sovereign individual is someone who is in control and takes accountability of their own decisions without delegating anything to anyone. How long after you first heard of Bitcoin did you start learning more about it and if you're comfortable saying purchase it? So I discovered Bitcoin in 2012. Um, I purchased, it, purchased the first ones in 2014, sold it almost instantly, and didn't get back in before 2017. So it took me many years before caring about it and being enough, open-minded enough to, to actually read about it. What movie or song is most related to Bitcoin in your opinion? The Matrix. Favorite movie clip or rant of all time? Fight Club. Definitely a favorite. I have to rewatch it, by the way. <laughs> Can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? Bitcoin is unstoppable by nature. Its properties and its decentralization make it like completely unbreakable. Um, though Bitcoin could fail if it's rendered completely useless. And to say Fadeen's point, you know, if we successfully go back to a gold standard, then yeah, maybe you know Bitcoin would potentially fail, but I believe you know if you look at the erosion of trust in institutions and the you know the way central banks have sort of managed uh, that gold standard in the past, I don't see that for happening. So going back to the first uh, the first point, I I believe Bitcoin now is unbreakable, and I'm saying now because in terms of just the cost to sustain a an attack that would actually be fatal to the protocol uh would it's just completely uneconomical perhaps one last nuance i would add is if there is in any way a catastrophic bug in the protocol that we've never heard of then yeah definitely uh or a new technology that all of a sudden comes to the world like quantum computing that is again stable enough to deploy a crazy amount of computing to break the encryption of bitcoin uh, but I'm pretty confident that Bitcoin's anti-fragility will just allow us to to uh, modify the, the protocol to basically ad adjust to that new uh, environmental threat. When, if ever, do you think the first central bank will start adding Bitcoin to their reserves uh, and will they exist in 20 years? <laughs> I think a bunch of them are already doing it. They're just not saying it. Uh, completely speculative opinion. But uh, yeah. Uh, for instance, you know, Bulgaria, they have, I think, 200,000 BTC right now. Um, I'm pretty certain countries that have a lot to gain to go off the USD global reserve um, current configuration uh, will be the ones that, that go about acquiring BTC first. And oftentimes these, these nations 
will also have uh, great access to cheap electricity, which is a phenomenal way to acquire Bitcoin in a private way, which is by by uh, mining. Yeah, man, two hundred thousand BTC could be quite the uh, quite the asset in the future <laughs> for a smaller country. Yeah. Bitcoin being the sort of uh, the world's largest wealth transfer, it applies for individuals. It also applies for nations. Yeah. Biggest mistake you've made with Bitcoin? Trading shitcoins. Thinking I could return on that was BTC denominated. Thinking I could be a, a trader on a on the most highly volatile market uh, we've seen recently, uh, and just being greedy and arrogant. Uh, that was the mistake. But you know what? You learn. You get wrecked, uh, and then uh, and then you move on. Totally. And you become a maximalist. <laughs> exactly. How do you feel about Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin's creator, being anonymous and the coins that he likely controls? I think Satoshi Nakamoto is the ultimate badass. He's uh, He understood the risk of giving birth to Bitcoin and going towards fighting with the world's largest and most powerful cartel. Uh, which has uh, control, monopolistic control over money production, you know, central banks. So I think he was a genius to sort of be aware that things, if gone, going well, could unfold in that way. So saying anonymous was the, the most, I think the second most beautiful gift that he gave to the world. Uh, the first one being, you know, the, the Genesis block and the uh, the... the the running implementation of Bitcoin. Um, how have you changed, if at all, as a result of learning about or interacting with Bitcoin? The biggest change. Oh, <laughs> change. Um, I would say lowering my time preference, even though it sounds cliche because you know a lot of Bitcoiners talk about this. It's been striking the way now any spending I do, I'm going to think twice before doing it. So whether it's like going and you know going and having food outside, or or even attending concerts and all that, I'm like, okay, like, does do I really want to do this? Is it really worth uh, spending those those precious satoshis today? Uh, and yeah, that is the biggest change. And I would say it's uh, it's impacting also other um, areas of my life. For instance, nutrition being another one. Uh, I'm just like much more aware of uh, the choices I made in general, and I try to be to be much more like to understand things better, to go and actually do research about like why am I eating this, and when I'm tired of when I eat, you know, carbs or pizza or pasta, like why is that? So trying to be more uh, skeptic uh, in a bunch of different aspects of my life. Yeah. I never thought about this before, but it might be why everyone's so active on Bitcoin Twitter because we're all just hermits at home. Like we don't want to go out because you know, like don't want to go out and spend yeah. money, so we're all just at home on Twitter talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What is what is your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion? If none on Bitcoin, any subject is okay. Um, I think Bitcoin block size will change in the future. Whether it goes up or down, it'll change. That's a controversial view. It's a, a discussion we've had like over and over again in the, in the community related to the ability of Bitcoin to generate a healthy fee market. Uh, and 
I believe the block size will play a role in the market in the future. Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years. So five years. So five years, we're going to be at 2024. So we're going to be... Okay, so we'll have two halvings, right? The 2020 halving and 2024. Um, I would say Bitcoin will hit a whole, an all-time high of, you know, roughly in the three to five mil, and it'll crash in the 200K in that, in that area. But again, who knows? Sure speculations. I'm actually piggybacking on, on the stock to flow model of Plan B. So I really hope I really hope that stock to flow model is gonna is gonna be somehow accurate because I, I think a lot of people are are basing their, their current allocation to Bitcoin based on that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a morning routine? If so, what is it? Uh, yeah, I uh, wake up, I take a big glass of water. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter for 30 minutes to an hour, and then I hit the gym, uh, and then I talk to my parents on the phone, and then I go to work. Usually nice. that's how I do it. Nice. How do you define success? Getting gradually better on a regular basis. So if I can like improve every day on something. For instance, I'm learning coding right now, so if I can just like do a little bit of it every day, great. Uh, and I think, again, it's success. It's just like seeing how better I am tomorrow versus this was yesterday. Most impactful book you've ever read? It's going to be cliche, but I would say uh, The Bitcoin Standard is a, is a big one for me. It really made me realize the, the impact of, of Bitcoin. And it, it made me want to commit to that mission for the next 20, 30 years of my life. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely uh, an impactful book. What is uh, one piece of advice or an important action you can advise people to take today if they want to up their game in whatever area you think is important or an area of your expertise? Uh, I would say keep, keep an open mind and stay humble. It's sort of like the, again, another, another cliche I would say. Like, I like... I like all these memes we have in the in the community. They're they're so true and so so real, man. Uh, like you know, Matt O'Dell and Marty are so good at, at shaping those, like the the stay humble and, and stack sats. Um, and so, yeah, I would I would recommend people to uh, to not be greedy uh, and and really be conservative in approaching this space if there are no corners. Um, to not get scammed into beautiful narratives about financial independence that are actually targeting gullible um, retail investors. Yeah. What is one question you'd like to see added to this list? <laughs> That's a tough one, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what if Bitcoin fails? What, what are you going to be doing? That's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, all right, last part, word association. I say a word, you say whatever comes to your mind first. Okay, let's do it. Satoshi Nakamoto. Genius. Government. Ugh. Hash rate. Peace of mind. The individual. Ownership. Security. Tranquility. Ego. Zero. Greed. Feed. Stack and sats. Every day. Fiat currency. Trash. Guns. 
maybe. Altcoins. Nope. Pizza. Once a year. Steak. Old day. Not a word, but. <laughs> Socialism. Past. Family. Central. Trump. Orange. Trudeau. Nah. Libra. Stupid. Gold. Old. And Bitcoin. Freedom. Awesome. That's it, man. I think it's time for me to let you get to bed. <laughs> it's probably, it's, uh, what time is it over there? 11.30 now? I'm sure you've had a super long day. But, uh, man, look, I, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, and sorry for the mix-up on, on the on the start time. But uh, this was super fun, man. I, uh, I I always enjoy these conversations. And particularly speaking with someone from Canada because I don't, you know, I don't get as many of those conversations. And of course, being Canadian myself, I'm curious about what's going on on the scene and stuff there. Um, is there anywhere you wanted to direct people or anything like that? Um, I'm, you know, pretty active on a, every day on Twitter. So if uh, anybody wants to chat, Twitter is great. T-H-I-B-M underscore. DMs always open. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, a shortened version of your name, right? How should I introduce you when I when I do the intro for the pod? Yeah, so uh, usually, so my, my first name is Thibaut. Right. Uh, I usually, people call me Tib. Tib. Yeah, so uh, Tib. that's why it's Tib on Twitter. It's just right. easier. Cool. Yeah, I'm having a hard time sort of like making that well pronounced with Anglos and international people. It's really a French name. So so Tib is much more, uh, much more exportable, I would say. <laughs> right. All right, man. Well, look, thanks again for, for taking the time. Really appreciate the conversation. And uh, yeah, look forward to maybe speaking again in the future after some time has passed and both of us are uh, are a little bit wiser in the space. It'll be fun to chat again. Definitely. Brilliant. Thank you, man. It was great. All right, brother. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.